Michael Schmidt is a poet, literary historian, translator, and editor. Born in Mexico in 1947. So I had to stop there. German name. Born in Mexico, 1947. No connection. Please. No. Parents were, were were German? No, my grandfather was from Saxony before it was annexed by Prussia. So he was a Saxon. Uh-huh. And he went to the States in 19... Sorry, 1880. And my dad was born in Denver, Colorado. And they went to Mexico in 1898. And so... Uh, and they, they were there much... Of the, my dad served in the American Army in the First War. And um, my grandfather was interned in the Second World War, along with a lot of other Germans and Chinese, uh, Japanese, uh, for the charges that he was trying to corner the castor bean industry, because a lot of the aviation oils were made with castor, castor oil. I was born across the street from um, the Blue House, where Frida Kahlo and, and Diego Rivera lived. And I overlapped with her by about five years, so I imagine she must have seen me in Okay. And we shared the same dentist as well. So. Oh, you had teeth at that point? Uh, yeah, the, 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 later on, my dentist, my, my orthodontist, <laughs> right. had been her dentist. So there, there's some horrible letters that she writes to him and says, please send me some painkillers. And he writes back and says, no. <laughs> he was a terrible sadist. <laughs> okay, so uh, in Mexico in 1947, he studied at Harvard and Oxford and has taught at Manchester and Glasgow. He uh, has published poetry, two novels, uh, The Literary Histories, Lives of the Poets and Lives of the Ancient Poets, and the novel a Biography, published in 2014. Mm. I've got 2016, so maybe, that is, maybe that's the United States. Yes, it is. Published in the United States by Harvard. And the other book that, that comes after that is The Gilgamesh, 2020, I think it was a history of, uh, sorry, of Gilgamesh. Okay. Well, welcome, uh, welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. We should just start this conversation off by telling people that you're the founder of the Carcanet Press and uh, the editorial and managing director of that press, as well as uh, the general editor of the PN Review, Poetry Nation. Yeah, it originally was called Poetry Nation, and then the word nation seemed to catch in people's throats uh, for reasons I didn't understand at the time. And uh, so we called it PN Review, and not many people, apart from Paul Muldoon, remember that that was the original name. Paul Muldoon remembers it in a humorous way, so that's... Oh, so. good. <laughs> and uh, Carcanet means jeweled necklace? Yes, uh, it's a horrible name. Uh, if you take off the C and the T, you have the word arcane staring at you. And I think that's what people see. That people don't know how to pronounce it. It was a, when, I, when I began, it was an Oxford Cambridge literary magazine, which um, I took over when I went to Oxford. It had been running for about eight years. Running is not the right word. It had been hobbling and, and um, so on for about eight And it had had a series of editors. None of them had stuck with it for very long. So as a corrective, I've stuck with it for 50 years. Right, right. And uh, hence, 50-50, Carcanet's Jubilee in Letters, which is a, mm. a book that I've read uh, last night and uh, want to follow that experience by talking to you about uh, what you do. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Uh, well, I, um, I guess I'm just uh, somebody who absolutely loves English poetry. Uh, having fallen in love with English poetry, when I went to Harvard, I wanted to become a member of the uh, part of the Advocate. And I, they wouldn't accept me, which is one reason I left Harvard. The other reason happened to be in Vietnam. I was a Mexican-American at that time, and I renounced my American citizenship. So I really wanted to work at the Advocate. So when I got to Oxford, I founded my own, well, didn't found, I took over a magazine. I needed a magazine. They were snobbish, or what, like, why couldn't, wouldn't you, why wouldn't they let you get involved at The Advocate? Um, I was, my first year, my, and of course, it's The Advocate, something you work your way into. Uh-huh. And I wasn't nearly as talented as I thought I was. 
So you acknowledged that they had a good eye for talent then? I don't know if they had a good eye for talent, but a lot of very good writers have been associated with it in their time. I don't know how it's recent record is going. Right. I I think if you are an editor, a magazine is a very good tool to have. First of all, you can try writers out in a magazine, and you can also uh, develop, secondly, a connection with the past. And for me... Younger editors nowadays, of course, are totally focused on the present and the future. Uh-huh. Whereas I've always been looking over my shoulder, uh, both my shoulders, uh, because I find things that have come before and have been overlooked by the sort the contemporary are often really valuable. So, how does being an editor of a magazine help? You just go through past issues and and read them and and spot people. Is that it? No, no, no. People submit work to you, and uh, all the time you're reading new work. Well, they do. They would do that if you're a publishing house, too. Yes, but they send full collections. It's much uh, better to get to know a poem, three poems, five poems, than a, a, then, bo- a book bills. As why? Why is that? Uh, because you then know the poet's work, and you've also participated to some extent in its shaping. Because you often, when you're doing a magazine, you edit in a different spirit from the spirit you do when you're editing a book. With a book, you have a finished or an ostensibly finished product. Right. And you're trying to improve it. But with a magazine, you have poems or sections of longer poems, and you're working with the author. You're trying to improve them too, though. But on a different scale. So it's not such an investment, is that what you're saying? In a way, it's a deeper investment because you're working very closely with a poet. With a book, you're working with a book. But with magazine editing, you're actually working with the writer in a much more intimate way. Is that right? Well, I, th- I don't. I don't see that. Well, it's my experience. Well, I like, mean, aren't you going to be just as concerned about what a poem looks and reads like in a book as in a magazine? No, because in a magazine, the poem has its place among amongst other writers' work. It has a different place in a structure because a magazine is a structure. A book is a bigger challenge, and I and I there are certain authors whose work I simply couldn't edit because it's uh, you know I. I don't feel, A, I don't feel it needs editing, or B, I feel that my editing would be a distortion of the work. You know, I don't entirely understand. I mean, with John Ashbery, for example, I wouldn't know where yeah, yeah. to start editing him. It's like you don't, you don't edit great art. No, no. Is that it? Uh, again, you can edit great art. Uh, when you think of uh, Alexander Pope writing the closing lines of The, the Deserted Village... You know, for Goldsmith, you can edit. You can add it, edit, and add to. Or Conrad working with, with, with uh, Ford Lennox Ford. Yeah, you can edit great art. But I, if you don't entirely understand where the artist is coming from, as I don't with John Ashbery. I mean, I love his work, but I don't understand where he's coming from. And his cultural references are so much wider and so much different from mine. Yeah. Uh, that I would have felt uneasy. Occasionally, I would say, you know, are you sure this is the right word or whatever. But, but almost humbly. Yeah, humbly, and, and yes, agnostically. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Many great publishing houses had their own magazines. Well, Faber did with the Criterion. Which Scribner. Scribner, yes, that's uh, right. I, they're not coming to mind, but no, I, I, many of the great mm. publishing houses have had... Uh, and in this country, Lawrence and Wishart, which was a big communist publishing house, had, uh, as, as, I think, several magazines, many of them uh-huh. edited by a very neglected and very wonderful writer called Edgel Rickward, who was, I think, a, a, a fine poet. He lost one. He, he lost an eye in the war. His final partner w- was a woman called Beatrix Hammerling, and she was Beatrix Potter's goddaughter, which is rather charming. And he remained very radical all of his life. I mean, he ceased to be a Stalinist, fortunately, somewhere along the line, but he yeah. was always very affiliated to the left, whereas most writers in, in Britain, as you know, start on the left and end up on the right. Yeah. You know? I think it's the right place to start when you're young, you know. What do you do? What do I do? What do you do? I come to work every morning at around 8, 8.30. I sit at my computer. I deal with submissions. Uh, I deal with editing. But most of my time is spent running a company. So that involves, like yesterday, I had to go to Bournemouth to try and resolve a major issue we're having with one of our suppliers. What, like, what was that? Can you get into it or not? Uh, probably not. This okay. Still, okay. So, 
you, you, much of my time is spent in running a business. I guess anybody who's a businessman knows about that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think uh, Unwin, Stanley Unwin, famously said something. Yeah. Like, you, know, you have to obviously you have to make a profit before you to continue. Well, we don't make a profit, and we never have really made a profit. You have to uh, cover your costs. Then we have an arts council grant, which helps us, and we also have a. a a proprietor who has been very generous, and and because uh, I, I sold the company in 1983, and uh, huh. it has been underwritten, if, if you like, by somebody who, who believes in what I'm doing and or what we're doing. That's and, wonderful. Yeah, and they they're still there, thank God. Um, Who's that? Uh, the the person who bought it in 1983 was a man called Robert Gavron, and he was a printer. Uh, he was he had he was a very wonderful intellectual man he became a labor peer he was the chairman of the guardian group and all sorts of things like that uh, and when he died his his widow Kate Gavin, um took it over and is now the sole proprietor and she's been incredibly supportive all along it's like a patron yeah really yeah. it's like you, having a patron yes you can't it's not you can't make it it's you can't make it commercially uh, we could at any point have made it commercially the trick would have been to produce many fewer books you'll find a number of the small presses there's one called Trio I see which produces three books a year which, if you produce fewer books and you produce only books that, were going to, uh, that you know are going to make it commercially you can become profitable quite easily I think you mean uh, that the, the maybe have been underwritten to some extent or no no I wouldn't uh, I, we the, don't normally do that kind of work but I'm talking about this a company that might focus on a fewer number of titles. And no, I, again, I think you, if if you have all your energies focused on selling one book a month rather than four books a month, yeah, uh, you can probably sell more copies. You, you, you and can, make more money. Uh, yeah, if, if you you sell more copies. Of course, uh, you make more money, <laughs> but course. also you produce less that doesn't sell, and I think that's that's the problem that we've always had. I've always overproduced because I'm a, a man of many enthusiasms. And overproduction is the key to bankruptcy, unless you have the Arts Council and a patron. <laughs> yeah, it's like risk. There's so many books that you want to publish. Yes. And you have to rein that desire yeah. in. Yeah. And as soon as you start reining it in, I think your calculations become more commercial. And our, my calculations have never been commercial. There are certain poets who publish whose work probably will never sell very much but I know that they're very very fine poets yeah and, and what, how do you know that I just know I mean yeah, I'm, I'm a poetry you, reader you, you, yeah. you, know, you know what's good you know you know you you know you, you love Clive James's work or you love Martin Amos or whatever and, um, and that's what I want to get at is what you do mm-hmm. basically you've had a life <laughs> you've had an education you've met some wonderful interesting people and you've done a lot of reading mm-hmm. That's what you just impose that. I know what's good. I know what's not good, mm-hmm. and uh, and this is so good it has to be part of the fold. Yeah. Is that it? Uh, yeah, and I think the word that you use just now, education, is the really crucial thing. The education I had at Oxford was the same education probably that Auden had, and that you know going back. Rickward had and going back way to the late 19th century we did Latin yes we read Virgil uh, we, our first term we spent with Milton we read Milton's prose and his uh, verse obviously and we cut our critical teeth on actual texts actual poetic texts and from Milton we read backwards and forwards in the English tradition we finished the course this is again back in the 60s we finished the course with the H. Lawrence because why would you need to study your contemporaries. They are your contemporaries, you understand them. And we all read the same books. So we we had the same points of reference. It, it was a very male-orientated uh, cur- curriculum, uh, and it was a very white curriculum. It's probably a prejudice against women. Um, not a prejudice against them, but just an assumption that a good woman writer would be much harder to find than a good male writer. And it that the, re- the feminist revolution has been one of the really informing things in my development as an editor, I think, because um, people like Ivan Boland really did sort of knock the scales out of my eyes, I guess, or rather scrape the scales out of my eyes. Um, 
and then people like Derek Walcott also then gave me a sense of other the possibility of other Englishes. So that's why we've become quite a, a major publisher of Caribbean poetry, obviously Australian, New Zealand poetry, uh, always American poetry, Irish poetry, um, even a couple of Canadians. Uh, okay, so you all had the same education. Uh, well, similar. What? We, we all read the same sensibilities. Text. We all read the same texts. I think yeah. I always distinguish between images and templates, and this is useful, I think, because we all read the same texts but brought different things to them, and we all developed our own distinctive cultures out of the same components, if you like. Well, you're, you had you your own people. You were different people. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. But what was nice is you would dis- if you had a discussion and you ta- started talking about Herrick or you started talking about Lovelace or Herbert, they knew what you were yes. talking about. Whereas yeah. now if you mention the name Chatterton to a student, the chances are they may have seen the painting, but they won't have read any of the work, you know, and there's some amazing things. Or some Christopher Smart, they'll know about my catch Jeffrey, but not the you know, not the rest of the well, some of them will. But I, I've been very disappointed returning to teaching here at Manchester, how few people are interested in anything beyond the nineteenth century, often anything beyond the twenty first century. Well, I was down in visiting my aunt in Wargrave outside of Reading went to this lovely pub, stayed there for a few days called The Bull and I couldn't help but think of uh, Fielding's Tom Jones I mentioned this to a couple of the younger people who were working there, never heard of him thought he was a singer (laughs) and the same same with another couple fairly, you know, youngish but seemed to be well educated Mm -hmm. and not a clue. Mm. It's it's. I mean, it's odd. Well, until it's done on television, until they do a television. Uh, I guess so. Yeah. But so what? So what? So what? If your all your peers uh, read the same stuff, so what? Well, it was good. It basically gave us a common culture, and you felt that you were that the enterprise of English literature was a coherent. I wouldn't say team because we were often in each other's throats, but it was a coherent. Uh, what would you call it? Environment, if you like. And we all loved it differently, and we all loved different things in it. And a lot of people rebelled against the fact that it was prescriptive. Yes. And, of course, that rebellion has led to the fact that everything now is an option. The, well, you, you quote Understanding Poetry, the, the, the great uh, anthology, sort of take, taking their prescriptive advice or rejecting it, right? Yeah. This was an important text for you, Absolutely. wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. We were all in the States uh, yeah. in, in my 12th grade, 11th and 12th grade, and then yeah. at, at Harvard, I think, even there we used it, that anthology. It was uh, Understanding Poetry. It was a, it, I still think it's a great anthology. Yeah. The trouble is I read it now and I rebel against the descriptions, you know. Well, they, they are they are very well, self-assured. Uh, they, well, I like, I really like a criticism that r- roughly knows what it means. Yeah. Um, but in their case, it's not that they know what they mean. There is a kind of meaning that they subscribe to. You know, it's something external to themselves. You, you can be very emphatic in your enthusiasms, but also realize that they are personal. You know? And that, I think, is probably something that I do quite a lot. You know, I, I know that there are certain poets whose work I... Almost everything in their work I understand and love, but know that a lot of people won't. You know? Like who? Well, my favorite poet is still probably a poet C.H. Sisson. Yeah, who was Sisson. crucial to Carcanet. Yeah. Carcanet, he, he was. And uh, he's one of the poets that I absolutely love, and though I would take issue with him on a lot of things, uh-huh. um, there's a kind of integrity about his imagination and about his body of work which is deeply English. I think this is one reason I find it uh, possible to become British rather than American uh, or Mexican. And is informed very much by the 17th and 18th centuries, which are the great, well, certainly the 18th century is the great overlooked century. And there's so much resource there for, for the contemporary writer. So he was he was very important to me. And uh, other you share the same library, I think you said. Like his yeah, his well, library became yours, or you, <laughs> you right? You tried yes. to emulate his. Yes, and I must say, if you came to my house, you'd see that a lot of my books overlap with his. <laughs> yeah. So I read Hooker. I mean, I also 
at his behest, did this series called The English Sermon, 1550 to 1853. Yes. Fat volumes. Wow. Which Ted, you said, would get me into heaven, because I typeset them myself. Oh. And, it, that, you know, you find these amazing... The sermon, nobody regards the sermon, really, you know, as a, a literary form. Right. But there's some really great sermons, you know, starting with the, the Sermon of the Plough. And so what makes them great? The, the style, the, the way they're written, the clarity with which they're written. Clarity and style. Yeah. And belief. The, 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 what? The sense that what they're writing is God's word? The sense that what they're writing is true. Uh, yeah. And I think the basic belief is the belief in the, in the reality of the incarnation. I think that's the thing that I find, that I find so compelling in the, with the metaphysicals so, they, they, so the know. argument they, they make is compelling is that it no the argument is a, it, it's a common argument it's a bit like my education at Oxford you know they, right. they, there are certain things that they've all read yeah. there are certain things they can easily refer to in the bible or, or whatever um, the prayer book the sense of a, a common wealth is exciting I, I find it why is it exciting well, we're not all separate. We're together in some community. Way. Yeah, C- and community. And again, that's something I think comes through a little bit in Carcanet too. I was going to say that, that you know you gave me the PNR two seventy one, mm. which is a celebration of uh, fifty years. Fifty years of of that review, and yes, this is the thing. Here you are in the fifty fifty saying. I was in the habit of writing letters to people early on. I mean, you write a ton of letters, <laughs> uh, soliciting or mm. you know thanking or praising, obviously, or a time, <laughs> yes, or providing a very empathetic feedback. I think that was another thing that came through: mm. is your your humanity. Well, I. Don't go too far. I have to go to the loo now. Excuse me. You have to go to the loo now. Humanity always no triggers, worries. Triggers, triggers my blood. Just want to continue this uh, uh, this line here um, uh, again about setting up the press. You, I stress the, f- and this is quoted from Fifty Fifty, uh, mm. the introduction. I stress the feeling of uh, the feeling for continuities and for living or survived history because it was part of the sense of place we had a place and in res- retrospect a time we were fortunate to occupy it also entailed a strong belief in the centrality of politics political ideas and debate and of the literature to those ideas and debates from the beginning but especially as exemplified in Milton the great pamphlet tradition yeah I think when I was talking about the religious um, writers of the uh, 17th and 18th centuries what was interesting there was not only the theology uh, and the spirituality but was the politics the politics uh-huh. and again this is what I think Sisson introduced me to too was this no- notion that a politics aren't <clears throat> as we were as we were beginning to feel at Oxford at the time the, the left politics were the, of the right as well and that there were notions of political balance, you know, the, the notion of the principles of permanence and the principles of change, you know, the lords and the commons, those sort of things. All, all these things were important. Not that you should have opinions about them, but that there were certain things that you could believe, you could believe in, which would inform your practical decisions, you know, like notions of balance. For him, the rural, I think, still was more, he was, I think, probably on the side of the principles of permanence rather than the principles of change. Do you think that's the great divide? I still think it is a great divide and Uh the principles of permanence have almost no hold on us at all now, which is why I think my education which was all about continuities 
is something that very few kids get these days. They're very eccentric kids who are curious about the past, and the past is not a thing that people are generally curious about, which is sad. So, yes, I think that that was, again, one of the things that was so exciting about Sisson was that for him, principles of permanence, you know, the visiting churches, you know, uh, the, the actual structure of the church, the, the things that had happened in it, the voices that had echoed through it, the, you know, the bodies, and the, the, the babies and the bodies that had passed through it. It's, it's a wonderful center. In cities you have them too. I mean, you have St. Anne's here around the corner, for example, where all sorts of writers were christened and some are, well, some of their parents are buried in the churchyard, De Quincey and so on. Um, and across the street we have where Mrs. Gaskell's husband was the Unitarian vicar or priest, minister. Th- th- those things do happen in cities, but again, it's, you know, I think without cities you wouldn't have had the emergence of Methodism and you might have done. And uh, then the emergence of Unitarianism and all the other uh, Protestant faiths which emerge. Right. I'm probably talking about nonsense. Well, I'm just trying to get at what you do. <laughs> so you, this is this is your 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 grounding that you then. I mean, basically, you're just uh, imparting your taste. Is that what you're doing? Judgment, I think. Really, I, I think taste is taste is very personal. You see, uh, okay. So let's do, let's define the difference then. I think taste is what you what you read in bed at night, probably, and judgment is something that you might sit up. You might not enjoy the things that you judge to be good. I mean, I don't read Milton much for pleasure anymore. I, I, no. I have done in the past, uh, but you, he's there. He's important. He's uh, like he's medicine. Informing. He's hmm? he's a good medicine to take. Is that uh, it? No, no, no. He's much more than a medicine. He's a good house to live in. A good strong. He's a good library. He's a good librarian as well. Uh, but he doesn't necessarily travel with you when you go on a walk. You know, you, you right. might put Herbert or Larkin or something else in your pocket. What is really weird to me is that when I read Ashbury, for example, his culture is not unlike mine. Right. But it's what he did with the with the ingredients that's so different from what I would be able to do. I do think a lot of the work is willful. Yeah. You know, he's he is seeing how far he can piss people off. Well. That yes, and I, I, I think how far can you go without boring yourself? You know, because uh-huh. some things he does are very long. Yeah, and I, I the, some of the, the the plays that we published recently, you know, you think, how did you have the patience to go on this long with this? It's, you know, it doesn't doesn't work. And and I think he could tell that some of the things he was doing didn't work. Okay. And that's why I didn't publish them. But they're being, of course, now dusted down. Okay, they're so prolific. Well, isn't this the thing that I see is being prolific, having so much energy, producing so much is part of the genius. In his case, it certainly is. But but, um, maybe, yeah, certainly not every poet is is prodigious in their output, but... No, he definitely is, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a Whitman thing, it's an American thing. Pound is the same in a way. I mean, Pound is incredibly... Um, Productive, you know. Yeah, yeah. And there's there are and whole areas that we still don't really go into. I don't mean the politics. I mean no. the, the, the translation. And so. Well, he was an incredible catalyst, just like yeah. you are. Yeah. I mean, well, this is much on a much larger scale than <laughs> myself. Well, he influenced and put together all sorts of people, didn't mm. he? And, and did such a service to the community. Yeah, yeah. Which is and what he, you're doing, right? He knew. He worked with Joyce. And he worked with Joyce on prose, which is interesting. You know, he, without he worked with Yeats. Yeah. Uh, obviously, he worked with Eliot. He worked with H. D. He worked with Mina Loy. He, you know, he was really he was there for people. He was a yeah. a resource for them as as well as obviously being an opinionated pain in the bottom. Well, uh, Lachlan, you know, the um, New Directions uh, yeah, publisher. Yeah. He went out and found him, and that's right. He sort of resurrected him, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I think every really brilliant writer, at some stage, needs to be rescued by a, by a believing publisher. Um, and is that what you are? I, only in a very few cases. I mean, the poets of the past that we published, including Sisson, would not be in print today were were it not for the fact that 
and they're not yet in, in the mainstream or they're not in the stream at all mm. Donald Davey who was such an incredible teacher and so on he became very important to me as a writer as an influence as a mentor if you like and he and Davey he and Sisson didn't get on terribly well or they you know, they got on well they didn't agree they disagreed over Pound didn't they? Or was they both loved Pound they were both that was, actually that's an interesting fact they both loved Pound but I think Davey loved Pound the teacher and the exam exemplar and Davy and Sisson loved Pound the um, the, the poet. The poet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, okay. Um, he really did love Pound the poet. So you connect. You've connected all of these people. You've published them. You've encouraged them to write about other poets and other yeah. works. What else have you done? I'm getting him to translate. I mean, Sisson. I got him to translate. Um, he has a poem called In Insula Avalonia, which I think is astonishingly beautiful, and it reminded me of Stevens, So I thought, we must get this man to do Dante. And he did, a, he did me a Dante, which I found really disappointing. You know, it, I thought, let Stevens loose on Dante, imagine what you get. But of course, Dante is so rooted and grounded in, in realities, even though it's you know transcendent realities. Mm-hmm. There's a, in a way, what's so wonderful about Stevens is he's He's free of all that. <laughs> His imagination is more airbound, I guess. Um, He's not that easy to get either. Oh, but getting, getting Stevens is just a matter of hearing him. You don't have yeah. to get the yeah. meaning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, with a lot of the poets I publish, I don't get them in the sense that I could paraphrase them or tell you what they're saying. No. Like, well, like Ashbury. It's just that they make such interesting noises, you know, and, <laughs> and they fit together so well. You know? <laughs> yes, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's I love this line. You close out your uh, you close out your introduction with this line, and it's an it's Anthony Rudolph, and he's he likes the Yiddish saying, "One word is not enough; two words are too many." Yeah, that's very good, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> that's so <yeah>. good. <laughs> Anthony Rudolph is somebody you might talk to because he's he's had such an intriguing life. Okay. Yeah, he's also been a publisher, of course. Oh, has the, he? The Menard Press, based on the journals of Pierre Menard, you know, the Borges story. Yeah, yeah. And he's published a lot of really... He published F.T. Prince and a number of other people, but he was also the model for... Um, oh, dear, who's the... Paul Arego. He was her male model. So, uh, and so he was obviously very... Also, her, I guess they were together as, as partners, and he's he's very eloquent. He's very embittered as well, I think. But he's a wonderful character. You're involved with the poetry society, which again has sort of served you well in terms of connecting you with people, right? Um, I don't remember having that much to do with the Poetry Society. Mm. What, what, what letters are you looking at there? Um, and now this is at the very beginning. I, don't, mm. I, I, just, I just jotted it down at the top of the page. Mm. Uh, but it seemed like you were, pr- I think you were president for a year or two. Oh, that was at Oxford, possibly. Yeah, Yeah, maybe. that was at Oxford, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. but uh, again, I'm, what I'm getting at is, as a publisher of poetry... You've got this magazine. You're you're involved in this society. You're you're putting yourself in a position to know <coughs> about a lot of work, mm. exposing yourself to a great deal of work, which you can then make a judgment on. I guess so. Yes. Is that what's made you successful, uh, or I don't think revered? Uh, only revered by very few people. Um, <laughs> uh, Your mother? My mother, yes. No, um, I think um, probably... I, 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 I think I probably liked to be visible. I think that was probably it. it was okay. A kind of, a kind of vanity. Okay. That, that the society stuff was. Right. Um, but the other thing people must remember about publishing, especially magazines, but also books, is that it, it is a kind of power... Because everyone wants to see their name in print, is that it? Well, it's partly that, but I think when you're when you're in a literary culture, like I, when I came to England, I was in a literary culture where you didn't like a lot of the contemporary work that was being published. Right. Well, yeah, most often when you're young, you think a lot of the stuff out there is shit. Yeah, 
so but you so you decide I'm going to uh, here I've, I've met people whose work I like you know there are people from the past whose work isn't published whose work I like right and so you think I'm going to get in there and I'm going to make a difference and as you assemble your your uh, list yeah you suddenly find that the people on your list are being read and are making you know are irritating the establishment and are getting up the nose of the you know the, the editors of certain journals and that's a, a real source of pleasure <laughs> the fact that you are beginning to make a difference well you're being uh, noticed and you're ch- and you're trying you to change society you're, yeah you're you're changing the, the literary culture to some extent so rediscovering Sisson was was a great excitement he started writing for the TLS he hadn't written for them for years uh, he started writing for uh, other magazines and journals he was on the radio though he had a very bad boy he had a slight speech impediment so he was very hard to understand on the radio but he began to make a real difference we redis- rediscovered if that's the right word we helped rediscover the work of um, W.S. Graham uh, okay. Sidney Graham the Scottish poet and uh had we not done that, Faber would not have done the collective poems. The same thing happened with George Barker. Mm. Again, these were poets from the apocalypse from the 40s and 50s who had simply been dropped from sight. They were still writing, they were writing amazing things. Yeah, um, I th- isn't that the thing? It's like, you want these people to get their due. Yeah. You yeah. think they've done the great work and it deserves acknowledgement. Yeah. Is that, is that what's driving you? Yeah. Yeah, it's and a, readers, yeah, yeah. It needs readers, and because if you have an impoverished publishing culture where, yeah. where you don't have access to the really large-scale figures from the past, you yeah. have um, an impoverished present because, you know, yeah. you do feed on... Well, you, you, sorry, you don't, you, you don't have a measure of what's really good. That's right. It's that's like, right. oh, you think that's good? Well, why don't you try re- reading this? Yeah, yeah. Is well, that this it? is what happened to English lyric poetry, I think, is that... Um, it became more and more uh, focused on it, on itself. And the thing about Graham, Sisson, Barker, David Wright, and so on, is they were writing large-scale work. Mm. And they were also writing lyric poetry. Uh, and the scale of their work, it's just, it's a different scale. It's like we publish um, Les Murray, the Australian yeah. poet. You know? yeah. he, he writes wonderful lyric poems, but he also writes verse novels, which, which don't sell. Let me tell you, it was my biggest ever. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. You <laughs> got a patron. That's right. You're, you're no, fine. I do worry about it. You're good I, to go. I don't like to. I don't like to leave my poor patron very often. Right. Uh, so, um, bless Murray. Yeah, yeah. He he was one of our, our great friends, uh, uh-huh. as it were. Um, well, that's what you're all renowned for too, and and revered for is this internationalism. I think so. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, we 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 certainly have had a, a very diverse list in terms of Englishes, yeah. But I think one of the things as an editor that's very difficult is to edit a poet from a different, completely different mm. Anglophone culture. Yeah. So you don't you, know the references for one thing, right? No, that's right. And you don't know the accent, necessarily. So we published yeah. a poet called uh, Togara Muzanenamo, who is a Zimbabwean poet. And I took the poems on with great excitement, and then I I couldn't edit the book. I did edit it in the end, but um, I just didn't know how to approach it. Was I going to be colonizing it? Was I going to be doing yeah, something yeah. to make it to it? Unless you don't know the music, maybe. Yeah. Whereas when we took on a poet, an uh, Indian poet, a Gujarat poet called Sujata Bhatt, um, I was immediately at home with her work. Uh, and um, she's been one of our really successful poets. You know, she's, she's well, and why were you at home with it? Because of her I, I think it's because she, she was modernist, I think, in... in and she seemed very accessible to me, and her world seemed very rich and a bit like my Mexican world. You know, there were, there were things happening animals, creatures, leaves, you know, sunlights. Um, and it just seemed I was immediately at home in it. And also, her issue of language, um, wrestling with language, you know, which language you write in. Before it was fashionable to write about these things, you know, she was a pre post colonial. You mean like local dialect? Is, uh, uh, is that what you're talking well, about? No, in her case it was Gujarat, the, the Gujarat language, which yeah. was her, her other language. And uh, I mean, she puts passages in, in Gujarat in her poems, in Gujarat script, yeah. in transliteration, and then in translation. Okay. Uh, but not in a kind of mechanical way. It's it's lived in a way. It's not it's not it's not just thought about. You know. 
Well, you mentioned other Englishes. Yeah. Well, they are very mm. different, aren't they? I mean, yeah. Les Murray's English is very different from... Yeah. Derek Wolcott's. Derek Wolcott's. Oh, that's what I love about Wolcott, is that he incorporates so much of the big tradition that, that I feel, you know, the big English tradition. He knows it all. Yeah. But he also has his own uh, traditions. And it's in a way that Brathwaite... That Brathwaite abandons the tradition I've been talking about, in a sense, and thinks that that, that is radical, and it certainly is radical. But... Um, He's got that poem which begins, it, 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 it is, it is, it is, it is not. And uh, apparently Walcott quoted this poem and says, it, it, it is, it is, it is not. It's not very good, is it? (laughs) 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 Which may or may not be true. I noticed the word prosody comes up quite a bit for you. Yeah. Maybe you define that. Uh, It would have been easier to define it in the 19th century as, as experimentation with meter and meters okay. and learning the tricks of meter but um, because the voice has become such an important element the notion of voice has become such an important element in contemporary poetry yeah. it's harder to talk about prosody and when I receive poems for PN Review if I can hear something distinctive in them that is what I would call a prosody there's something it's not peculiar to the poet it's peculiar to the poem I think most mm. of the poets whose work I really uh, being electrified by in in the magazine, including Sujata, um, have a prosody which is, which relates to tra- traditional prosody in various ways, but is also different from it. Very early on at Oxford, I met a poet called Elizabeth Dariush. I think she may be in the book. She's in the book, yeah. And she was the daughter of Robert Bridges. Now, Robert Bridges was... Was, was he a poet laureate? He was poet yeah. laureate. And he's, he was a very close friend of uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, and they used to always correspond about and argue about prosody. And Dariush, as a, as a little girl, and, or as a girl, she and her father would talk about prosody a lot, and they would talk about Milton. And reading Milton aloud to one another, they realized that he's not all iambics. Something else is going on. And she began to realize that often he's writing against the iambic. And she developed the theory of syllabic poetry, which is a means of getting away from my, the dominance of Miami pentameter. Mm-hmm. In the same year, apparently, according to Ivor Winters and Donald Davy, uh, Marianne Moore was doing the same experiments in the States. So mm-hmm. two women devising this new prosody, which they call syllabic, and understanding that it's not facile, that it's not just a matter of counting syllables, that other, you know, if you take away, if you take down the net, you put up another net. And this is what I think was so enabling for for Tom Gunn, you know, getting away from meter. He had to, he was totally obsessed with the in the seventeenth and, and possibly sixteenth centuries. And um, how do you get away from this habit of meter? Well you don't just move into free verse, because if you do you're just basically writing chopped up prose. He moved through syllabics and he did that through Darius, through Winters himself who was a syllabicist mm. and was his teacher at Sanford and um Yeah, I don't really care but I mean, again I'm not uh, I'm not an expert. I'm an interested mm. reader. Yeah. I, I couldn't care less about any of that. I just, you know what I mean. I mean, it has to. If it sounds lovely to me, if it says speaks to me, if it hits my intelligence or hits my emotions. But, but I think w- if you were, if you were, I think if you're a creator, you have to have some form of resistance that you're working against. Not as a reader necessarily. But it I, makes you better, is that it? Like it makes oh, what it makes what you're writing gonna be more appealing to me. No no no, no I don't even know why. Is that no, it? No no it won't necessarily appeal to you more. What it does is it squeezes a lot of the fat out of the language. If you push if you push a poem through a syllabic discipline, there's certain things you can't put in because the syllabics don't work. So there's a right and a wrong? There's a better and a worse. I always, when I'm doing workshops, it's very hard to explain this to students, is you're always trying to create a space for the reader, not just to express yourself. I think when people say you must find your voice, you must express yourself, I think that's not really what you should be doing at all. You're creating a structure, which is a space for the reader. And Whitman does this. The I in Song of Myself isn't me, Walt Whitman. It's it's me, Michael Schmidt. You know, when I read it, it's my libretto. It's not his. A, a great novel or a great piece of writing it's going to leave space for me to think about it and and maybe even finish it myself <laughs> and feel like I'm yeah. actually contributing yeah, and yeah. doing something yeah. creative as a reader 
Well, I think nothing is complete. No piece of writing is complete mm. until it has a reader. Right. But I don't know about thinking. I think living, you have to live, you know, with a novel, you're actually in it. Yeah. If it's a good novel, you know, you're astonished by some of the things that the novelist might be saying, and but you're yeah. in you're in it, you're in the character. You're feeling you're it. Yeah. yeah. And again, that happens in a good poem. Okay. There's a, a, I always quote this example, but there's a famous poem by Larkin called Home, I think it's called. Uh-huh. Home is so sad it stays as it was left, shaped to the comfort of the last to go. And you read through the poem, it's only a very short poem, maybe 12 lines. I think it's just short of a sonnet. And there's not a single image in the poem. And it ends, pictures on the wall, cutlery in the drawer, the music in the piano stool, that vase. So every reader reads those words and sees the room mm-hmm. and puts the pictures on the wall, mm-hmm. sees the kind of cutlery in the drawer. If they, if they know what a piano stool is, they, they know what music's in the piano stool. And that vase, that deictic, that's such a wonderful way to end a poem, isn't it? That vase. So you suddenly have something very specific which isn't specified. Well, it's, it's yours. Yeah. The whole space of the poem is yours. Now, the poem seems to me to be about his mother. It seems to me about her disappointment in him and her disappointment in her life. Right. And so on so But that's not what the poem is about. The poem is about, basically about home and how, how you, you betray it when you leave it and it feels a betrayal. You know, it's, it's a very, very powerful little poem. But as you say, it's, it opens up. Well, I've heard poems described as little, little detonators. Yeah, you, know, you, you d- drop it in there, and then after a while, it goes yeah. off. Yeah, is that what you're you're hoping for when you read a po- uh, Like, are you using all of this in, in your judgment? I mean, like you talk about the syllabic approach. It's like. There's better and worse. So, what's better and what's worse? And I do. I don't see poems as detonators, um, though they can detonate. What's better and what's worse? I think what's better is what's memorable. What's re- what really mm. not memorable because it's cliched, but memorable in a new way, which mm. opens new space for you. Um, it's something that adds to your uh, ear, as it were, to your hearing. And it adds to your feeling in some way. Uh, okay. Worse is something that coarsens or cheapens your feeling. Something that's sentimental, for example, is not good. I mean, when you read about the success of Ruby Kaur, I don't know if you know about her. She's, she's Canadian. Canadian. <laughs> she's doing something right because it's just the sales she, are. Like she takes up all the freaking space yeah, on that poetry tables, in a bookstore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, she she sells and she sells because she sells to the young. Female, yes, this, uh, this yearning for expression of yeah. angst or something, yeah, and um, right, yeah, I guess that's what it is. But again, she's making it up. I mean, I'm, maybe the first book was was authentic. I don't know, uh, but I think now she knows what pays and you know what what sells, and she does it over and over again. Um, but I think that is cheapening or coarsening, and. There are things that we need when we're young, um, which we outgrow, and I think that may be one of the things that we will outgrow. I just made it last time. Come in. This is our friend the postman. Who needed a haircut? He promised he was going to get his haircut. I wonder if he has. I have been talking about getting a haircut for the last, and I walked past <laughs> this academy. Oh yes. Barbering Academy. The guy says you can get a free haircut. Just go to our website. Oh. It's for, yeah, it's, it's it's not that far away from here. But are we okay to continue talking? We'll be here in a moment. He'll be he'll, he'll be, be here. Yeah, and then I'll have another tea, and then we'll continue. So yeah, yeah that's. Uh, I, I didn't think we were going to talk about Rupi Kaur. She always seems to come in into conversation. I bring her out quite a bit too. Uh, I mean, uh, it's this Instagram yearning to. Purge uh, emotion every or age, something. Every age has its. Uh, its yeah. Its well, Khalil Gibran was. Yeah. Gigantic sales. But we still know this along in my heart, don't we? Uh, well, no, we don't. No, I was I thinking know. Fitzgerald's Rubaiyat because that is yeah. a, that is a great piece of versifying prosody. Okay, so you're telling me what you do. Have, have you finished doing that yet? Well, I hope so. Let me just see. Here. Yeah, let's. 
Look, he hasn't had. I was telling you, you needed a haircut. You haven't had no, a haircut. No. <laughs> I'll Thank <best>. you, sir. <laughs> See you later. Oh, by the way, just FYI, I took the liberty of. I found a copy of the first pamphlet. Oh, Blind Openings. Blind Openings. And I ordered it from the poetry shop in Hay on Wye. And oh, I wow. asked them to bring to deliver it here so that I can get you to sign it for oh, me. Oh, really? The very first one? Well, that's very fun. I, I think I have a copy of that. Oh, yeah. Well. I must visit the... These are the, the original pamphlets yeah. there. Yeah, here it is. Uh, oh, there it is. That's right. So I've got I've got one coming to you actually. Excellent. Uh, I'll send it on to you. Yeah, unless you want to just. You see, I had to buy that one back. I saw that. Yeah, they're not <coughs> expensive, which is great. Great. A little bit of Salan, of course. That was my first exposure to him. Yes, and he killed himself, right? He did. Yeah. Yeah, that's yes, that's a connection. We just published. Um, What's her name? Uh, Salah's lady friend. Oh, okay. Uh, huh. Nelly Sachs. What's that? Nelly Sachs. She was a rich woman. She got the Nobel Prize. That's just coming out next month. Jeez, this is a, this is a brick. I know. We do that from time to time. <laughs> it's one of the reasons we lose money. <laughs> I was going to say, it's like, uh, but a Nobel Prize winner, I mean, that's not a huge risk well no it is a bit of a risk because she's a German you know she's German language and we, we talked a bit about how you do what you do can you you have anything to add to that I guess the only thing to say is that uh, judgment isn't static or stable and nor is taste um, again some of the writers you publish early on you no longer value later on a bit like Faber, we try to keep faith with the writers we, we like, even if they don't sell particularly well. But there's some that we don't keep faith with because we... Well, that's not the right word. There's some that, that we part company with. Well, like Norm Cyber, because we published a lot of his books. Um, and I still love his work. Uh, but I couldn't sell it at all. You know, it was, We were just mm -hmm. publishing for yeah. the warehouse. Mm -hmm. And the same with an American poet whose work I absolutely adored. He was one of my fa still is one of my favorite poets called John Peck. Uh, and again, we published a lot of his work, more, more than I should have done, probably. That's how one's enthusiasm can be damaging. Yeah. Yes. Well, it can put you out of business or... Yeah. yeah. Or put them out of, out of sorts. The worst experience I had was one of my, again, another one of my very favorite poets was, um, is, was Christopher Middleton. Uh -huh. And uh, we did his great big collected poems. It's probably here somewhere. It's, it's a real doorstop of a book. It was one of the fattest books. Here it is. Collected poems. It was very dense. Yes. And I get, came to the launch and I presented him with a copy. Yeah. And he said, I have something for you. My next collection. Uh, <laughs> this is your tombstone. Stop writing. That's right. Points. How can we call this collected? Yes, collected to this point. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So why why have you spent the last fifty years doing this? For pleasure, really. I haven't made a living at it. Obviously, I've made my living as a teacher, Pro yeah, a theater critic, broadcaster, and literary historian. So I. And all of these different things inform your role as a as a poetry publisher, obviously, right? I guess so. Yeah, we weren't. That's the other thing is to remember: we weren't always just a poetry. Publisher. No, I just see in the eighties you got into fiction. <laughs> we did some very good fiction. I I didn't always edit the fiction. In fact, um, I had two people who were very important: Mike Freeman, who is a very good friend of mine, who was very into people like Christine Brooke Rose, and actually could deal with her, which I couldn't. Um, and um, and Matthew Frost, who now works at Manchester University Press, who uh, was 
was very helpful. And then there were people like Stuart Hood, who was a wonderful Scottish translator uh, from the Italian, uh, who put me in the way of Ginsberg, Natalia Ginsberg, and, and Leonardo Shasha and others. Um, so we had a really interesting. We did Sebastian. I don't know if you know Sebastian Barry. Yeah. We did his first novel. Totally oh. disavows this novel, but it's, we have copies. Somewhere. We did the first book by Orhan Pamuk. We did his first novel, and we did Saramago's first novel. We did all of Clarice Lispector, uh, translated by Giovanni Pontero, and I do think his translations are much better than the. Is it Moser? I can't remember the name of the guy who now translates him. No, don't know. Um, I interviewed the Italian. Well, he. I think he published him in Spanish and had, had a huge success. Publisher of of Pamuk in Merlin about two months ago, mm. Ricky Cavallero, ah. that's his name. But and he actually he invited all sorts of writers and publishers to uh, their place in, in uh, Milan once a week. He, they threw this oh, big wow. dinner. It didn't cost anyone anything. They just showed up and. This is how he. Uh, That's nice. That is nice. That's a nice way of creating uh, a, uh-huh. a group. Free food will attract yeah. an audience, of course. And but, alcohol. Yeah. yeah, but actually, I think most. What is interesting is to think if if I had made a room full of the poets that I published, uh-huh. it would probably ended in fistfights because mm. the poets I published didn't always like each other. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I published Graves and Laura Riding, Robert Graves and Laura Riding. After the uh, after well, well yeah. after the breakup. Yeah. yeah. And I, I published writing first. She right. was a very demanding writer. The library here is full of her letters to me. We never met Graves, of course. He was gone by the time. But uh, his son is a very nice man, William. And uh, so we writing doesn't sell it all anymore. Nobody reads her. Ashbury loved her. Absolutely loved her. Her writing? Yeah. And is it any good? I love her writing. I think it's very interesting. Poetry mostly, or...? I love her poetry, especially her early poetry, which right. which I made her bring together because she she done it as collected poems. The early book was called First Awakenings, and it was a wonderful book. And they're very, they don't make sense in the way that you know most people want poetry to make yeah. sense. Yeah. But they do they do all sorts of wonderful things with sound and with uh, association. It's a bit like what I love about Stevens is that you, you never have to understand Stevens no. you know it, it happens well you, it's up to you the reader to, to, to put that on hold yeah stop yeah. putting your curious <laughs> inquisitive rational mind right. uh, put yeah, it yeah. in neutral for a while yeah, yeah. just yeah. respond yeah well his war poems are mm. magnificent war poems yeah which ones Wallace Stevens we're talking about yeah which were the war Yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly, but I know that those had the biggest impact on me. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah, he wrote about war, uh, for, as far as I'm aware. And I, uh, you may be right. I, I can't think that's, of that's, that's, To me, that's what I associate. His mm-hmm. best stuff is connected to, to war and really? peace. And Anyway, okay. uh, I'm, uh, I have to revisit. I, my library is stuck in storage in Montreal and <laughs> Ottawa right now. Ah. So uh, if I, if I lived here, I would. Is I it would all going to go to to Prague in the end? I don't know exactly. I really die. I, I hope. I I hope my it'll yes. all. Don't burn all your bridges. It'll <laughs> hope. Uh, yeah, but yeah. I just love to have a nice place with all my books. Yeah. Calm and yeah. Uh. I'd but, like to have a nice place without all my books. They just they so crowd me out of my house. Yeah, you can't say that. That's crazy. <laughs> um, yes, books are a load of crap, as, as I think uh, Larkin said. Well, they're sure as hell are heavy. <laughs> they are. They're bloody heavy when yeah. you're moving, and I've done quite a bit of that. Yeah. Just finally, then I give. I'm look. We're looking at what you've done here. These walls are full of. Wonderful books, uh, and I'm looking at all the spines, and so uh, it's a big deal. <laughs> exactly. Big. So uh, why? Uh, what? What? what well, when you think back in history, uh, who? Which publishers' names do you remember? Only those whose names appear on, uh, who name their publishing houses after themselves, like John Murray. Yeah. Uh, Jeffrey Faber. Jeffrey Faber. 
I actually interviewed Toby Faber a couple of times. He's, he's a nice man. Yes, he is. And he wrote the, his, the, the history, history that hadn't been written for it, the, so his, long. It, one of his, um, uh, the successor to Charles Monteith. Yeah. You know, the pe- no, before Charles Monteith. Yes, you mentioned him in the book. Uh, yeah, he was so helpful. You know, to you, to setting us. up. And yeah. again, you wrote to him, right? Yeah, that's Early right. on. That's right. And he was very helpful. And so was, so was um, Blackwell's in, in Blackwell's. There, there was this wonderful sense that they were welcoming you. You know, uh-huh. I was 21 or 2, and they were welcoming you into the, into the tradition, I guess, or, you know, into the community of publishers. Even and, though we were just doing little pamphlets. You know. But you had immediate success with those. We did, yes. Which is very important in publishing. And if we hadn't, I would be a banker. I'd be happy yeah. and rich yeah. and retired. Yeah, you'd be a bastard, is what you'd be. I'd, love I'd be so happy being a you'd, bastard. You'd be a, a nasty piece of work that screws <laughs> up the world Why and not? makes it inhuman. <laughs> and maybe that's what you're doing, is making the world more human. Is uh, that what you're doing? Uh, only for a time, you know. Yeah. <laughs> is that why it matters? I, no, I don't think so. I think it matters because uh, poetry matters, and I'm not sure why poetry matters. I think poetry matters because it enhances, extends, revitalizes the language in various ways. And even if it's only narrowly read, the noises it makes escape, you know, it's like a bird, which some people hear, some people don't hear it, but it's still singing. So. Do you think rap is the new...? I haven't been able to warm to rap. Yeah, or hip hop and all that stuff. I find um, it's so not my, so so not me. Um, yeah. I don't like being shouted at, and I don't like, I, I like. I don't like the word motherfucker. No, but <laughs> when I was in China, my son got married in China, and we we were in um, Beijing, and in Beijing they have lots of groups that do exercises together. <laughs> there was a group of old people doing their stretching, and the recording there was. Motherfucker, motherfucker. That <laughs> was just so cute. <laughs> it's got a lyrical, yeah, it's a lilt to it. It's, it's iambic Dimeter, isn't it? Yes. Motherfucker. Or is it, I don't know what the hell it is. But yeah, it's a nice word to say, yeah. but over and over again is a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you don't know why it matters, but it matters. And so, in other words, your life has mattered. You're not sure why, but it has. And my life hasn't isn't over yet. My my no. life will matter, I think, at some stage. So you've got like, lots more books in you. Is that what you're saying? Your plan is not to die. That's right. That's the best idea, I think. Yes, but no, I think my plan is to. Um, I want to uh, finish the book I'm supposed to be writing, which is a history of Latin poetry from the beginning to the present day, because people still write Latin poetry. Um, whether I'll be able to do that, I don't know. And I also suddenly discovered that I had another book of poems to write, I think. So that's exciting. That oh, That's my happiest time when I'm writing poetry. It's You're not angst-ridden? You love doing it? The actual think, process? The, the angst is, is when it stops coming, and then suddenly... You know, a little, a little something comes out, and a little bit more, and you suddenly realize, ah, oh, there is more there. That's exciting, uh, and it usually is stimulated by discovering another poet. Like, for example, there's a, a poet. Well, Stanley Moss is great, has a great impact on me. He's now 98, and uh, he writes a lot of poems. And there's something's happened in his head. Something has given way, and he writes one or two poems a day, I think now. And some of them are really extraordinary. And a poet called Miles Burroughs, who I'm very fond of, who I discovered about four or five years ago, he writes poems which make me laugh out loud. I can't not laugh. That's great. Which is unusual. Uh, and it's such a relief when you're reading submissions to the magazine suddenly to find somebody who's not <laughs> writing about their dead dog or cat or a landscape, but is, you know, making jokes. That's why I love Clive James so much. Yeah, he's, he is humorous always, isn't he? Yeah. Humor is so important yeah. to me anyway. It is. I think I'm a, an ironist. I mean, I was talking to my doctor this morning and we couldn't stop laughing you know, about my dementia. <laughs> it is quite funny, as you lose your memory. I, I mean, can you remember the name of the last British Prime Minister before the present one? You see? Yeah, it was a woman, May, Theresa May. No, no, that's, you're going back. Uh, well, you, it's, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm not connected to this uh, <laughs> politics. That's as good as it I gets. I remembered it this morning. Well, there's Boris, of course. Well, I love Boris, yes, he was fun. 
I mean, he was he was hubris. Yeah, but he's a freaking <laughs> liar. What? You liar. Oh yeah, you know, I'm just talking about humor. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I do think politics should have a bit of humor in it, but not quite as much perhaps as uh, Donald Trump. No, no. That's a, that's a big joke. <laughs> it's a scary joke. Yeah, it's gone on too long. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, it's a great pleasure. We have covered everything. I can't think of anything we haven't talked about except women. Yeah. But... That's a huge topic. No, uh, I mean women poets, which is still a big topic, because it's very interesting that the press was enti- almost entirely male, apart yeah. from Sally Purcell, until we were about four or five years old, and then gradually women started moving moving in on the press. And I think now we publish probably half women, not on, not deliberately, but it just happens to be the way it works. Right. Well, and again, that's your, that's your judgment. Yeah. And it's not just because you want to even the score, it's because it's really... They're, they're poets who really great stuff yeah some of it is really really fine um, uh-huh. and again a lot of them are older women people like E.J. Scavell people like uh, like um, Anne Riddler who was Elliot's secretary uh-huh. and then when you read her, her correspondence and you suddenly realise that Elliot did not allow her to include Edward Thomas in one of her anthologies that's fascinating because whenever I used to read Thomas I used to think there's so much here that's not unlike Eliot and Eliot didn't like his poetry and this was 40, in the 40s I guess maybe even early yeah. and he just said no don't include him he's not a good poet and there um, you go. that's the gatekeeper you, you, yeah. you're you the gatekeeper no, I'm the gate I'm the gate builder oh okay that's <laughs> so good so was he he was, he was a gate builder as well yeah okay well I always get irritated when I'm just told you you gatekeepers yeah of course, it's my bloody gate. I've yeah, built a yeah. fucking thing. <laughs> well, thanks for excuse, building it. Yes, excuse me for being vulgar. Might as well close on a vulgar note. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, Michael Schmidt is the founder, managing director, and editorial director of the Carcanet Press and general editor of PN Review. Thanks again. Uh, Thank you. A pleasure.